Welcome to God is Open. I'm your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about the philosophy of Plato. Now, we're going to turn first to Plotinus, who was a Neoplatonist. Of course, these Neoplatonists during uh, the 200s, 300s AD, they wouldn't consider themselves Neoplatonists. They'd consider themselves straight Platonists. They are just expositors on the principles that Plato himself taught in their own minds. And we read this in Plotinus. Plato teaches also there is another cause that is of the intellectual principle, which to him is the creator who made the soul, as he tells us in the famous mixing bowl. The author, this author of the causing principle of the divine mind is to him the good, that which transcends the intellectual principle and transcends being. Often too, he uses the term, the idea to indicate being and the divine mind. Thus Plato knows the order of generation from the good, the intellectual, intellectual principle, from the intellectual principle, the soul. These teachings are therefore no novelties, no inventions of today, but long since stated, if not stressed, our doctrine here is the explanation of an earlier and can show the antiquity of these opinions on the testimony of Plato himself. Skipping forward, the Platonic Paramendes is more exact. The distinction is made between the primal one, a strictly pure unity, and a secondary one, which is a one-many, and a third, which is a one-and-many. Thus, he too is in accordance with our thesis of three kinds. So the Platonic Paramendes is the Paramendes that appears in the Platonic dialogue of the same name. It's not the historical uh, platonic or it's not the it's not the historical paramendes of history the historic paramendes was an influencer of plato we have some some uh, abstracts of his work what he taught we have some of his own original words but for the most part he's lost to history he teaches a conception of pure being and uh, i I have it pulled up here, some of these quotes. For if it was, previously was, it is not. That also not, if it is the first, supposed to be at some time in the future. Thus is, for being, emergence extinguished and perishing not to be found. That means if anything comes about, then it must decay. Also, there is no taking it apart, for it is entirely the same within itself. This is pure simplicity. Also, there is no supplement that coming to it in addition would prevent its coherent cohering density nor privation in a sense of a gap or holes it is entirely full being of being this is more simplicity this is immutability this is uh, not needing from outside yourself throughout its coherence it is a whole for being only comes near to being pure acidity pure actuality Th these ideas are championed before Plato, Plato picks them up and he puts them in his own work. So the most Neoplatonistic work that exists is his uh, Paramendes, as we talked about before, which talks expressly about the one. Now, the idea of the one in Plato was the primary principle. And this is Plato's idea of God. And although his dialogues don't specifically say this, we learn from multiple of his pupils, this is exactly what he taught. We will read Aristotle on this. Here's Aristotle. Plato then declared himself thus on the points in question. It is evident from what has been said that he has used only two causes, 
that of essence and the material world. For forms are the causes of the essence of all other things, and the one is the cause of the essence of the forms. So you got three levels of reality. The one is the top. This is Aristotle, a person who was directly pupiled by Plato telling us what Plato believed. And it is evident what the underlying matter is, of which the forms are predicated in the case of sensible things, and the one in the case of the forms. That is a dyad, the great and the small. So Aristotle taught that Plato taught the one as the ultimate principle. The ultimate God is the one. And we see in his Paramendes what he's talking about. And I have here summed up, this is in a draft manuscript of mine, the Hellenization of Christianity, currently at about uh, 70,000 words, probably my next book going on here. But I took the dialogue of Paramendes and I consolidated it because it's a dialogue, it's a back and forth, there's different characters speaking, and so it's harder to read than would a paragraph. So here's my consolidation of the, the discussion, some of the discussion on the principle of the one. If one is, the one cannot be many, the one cannot have parts, and it cannot be a whole, because every part is part of a whole. And what is a whole? Would not that of which no part is wanting be a whole? Then in either case, the one would be made up of parts, both as being a whole and also having parts. And in either case, the one would be many and not one. This is the idea of pure simplicity. This is from Plato. But surely it ought to be one and not many. Then if the one is to remain one, it will not be a whole and will not have parts. But if it has no parts, it will not have either beginning, middle, nor end, for these would, of course, be parts of it. This one is eternal. This one is timeless. But then again, a beginning and an end are limits of everything. Then the one having neither beginning nor end is unlimited. These ideas of non-limitation. If the one were moved, it would either be moved in place or changed in nature, for these are only kinds of motion. And the one, when it changes and ceases to be itself, cannot be any longer the one. It cannot, therefore, experience the sort of motion which is a change of nature. This, this one is immutable. This is directly from Plato. And therefore, whatever comes into being in another must have parts. And then one part may be, and in another part out of another. But that which has no parts can never be at one. At the same time, neither wholly within nor wholly without anything. There's no predicates in the one. In this respect of any kind of motion, the one is immu immu immovable. Immu immovable. This is immutability again. Then things which are in time partake of time must in every case be of the same age with themselves and must also become at once older and younger than themselves. It does not partake in time, then it is not in any time. And if the one is absolutely without participation in time, it has become or becoming or was at any time and is now becoming or is becoming or is or will become or will have become or will be hereafter. He's saying all these things do not apply to the one. The one is perfectly timeless or else you introduce parts into the one. The one emits no attribute or relation and there is no name, no, nor expression, nor perception, nor opinion, nor knowledge of it. It is neither named, nor expressed, nor opined, nor known, nor does anything that is perceiving it. And so this one is ineffable. We, we have all the elements that are taught by the Neoplatonists in Plato himself directly from the words of Plato. Now, now if you read Paramendes, the, the dialogue, it's not expressly stated that this is Plato's God. Plato doesn't actually have any treatises that survive till today. We, we have information from his pupils 
that he did have some treatises directly about subjects, but we don't have any today. All we have is his dialogues in which two characters are talking out different concepts. And so one of the things that they did at that time was they hid uh, their, their truths their truths in the details. And so they wouldn't go out and say exactly what their philosophy was, but look at all the stuff that he's talking about here. All this fits exactly what the Neoplatonists believe and expressly teach about who the ultimate God is. This is These are concepts found in Plato. And you can apply other concepts that he talks about elsewhere also to this one, this one that his pupil Aristotle and other pupils stated that Plato taught. Plato teaches these things. This is Plato's metaphysics that we're, we're looking at here. So as we read elsewhere that Plato ascribes the one and the good to the same being, in the Republic we learn about uh, these things cannot change, neither for the better or the worst, although we already covered that in the Paramedes dialogue, it's repeated again in the Republic. Shall I ask you whether God is a magician and of a nature to appear instantly now in one shape and now in another, sometimes himself changing and passing into many forms, or is he one and the same immutably fixed in his own proper image? If we suppose a change in anything, that change must be affected either by that thing itself or by some other thing, and things which are at their best are also least liable to be altered. So this is the famous uh, Platonic formula that God cannot change because whatever changes either changes for the better or the worse. God can't change for the better, and if he changes for the worse, then he's not God. Therefore, God cannot change. Found directly in the Republic, repeated by Christian scholars. We find in Timaeus, so his dialogue where he talks about the Demiurge, which we could, for all intents and purposes, identify with the one, because he talks about these time predicates again, how they do not apply to this one. For we say that he was, he is, he will be, but the truth is that is alone is properly attributed to him, and that was and will be only be spoken of becoming in time, for they are motions. But that which is immovable is the same and cannot be older or younger by time, nor ever did or has become, nor hereafter will be, older or younger, nor subject at all to any of these states which affect moving and sensible things, of which the generation is the cause. So Plato's saying here that... Uh, you, you have to be immutable, that you have to be timeless if you're the ultimate creator. So these are the attributes of the one. These are the attributes that Plato taught. These are the attributes that are, they're, they're echoed in Platonism. This is how we understand the Neoplatonic one. This was taught by Plato. It's not like the Neoplatonists were just making up new things. They were drawing on the words of Plato. They were reading into what Plato wrote. They were looking at uh, Plato's critics, such as Aristotle, and in the case of Plotinus, uh, he spends a good deal of time defending ideas that Aristotle attributes to Plato that are not found in Platonic dialogues. Plotinus defends Plato's uh, views, which he learned from Aristotle that Plato held. He's defending Plato against Aristotle that he's a Neoplatonist. He considers himself a Platonist. He's just teaching things of Platonism. So what are some key elements of Neoplatonism? And then we'll look to see where the Neoplatonists get that in Plato. I'm going to read a short summary of what Neoplatonism is. So now we're going to turn to a book by Philip Merlin, and he's a little bit hostile to the idea that the Neoplatonists are teaching exactly what Plato taught. But he points out in this book that modern scholarship is saying 
that uh, the previous scholarship was wrong to try to separate them, give them some sort of real divide. And the, now the modern tendency is to say that the Neoplatonists were fairly, fairly closer, a lot closer, a lot more bridged with Plato than the previous scholarship had assumed. But he gives us a nice little six bullet points about what characteristically is Neoplatonism. And we'll just go ahead and read this. It's going to be a little bit complicated, but I'll I'll try to talk, talk about it in simpler terms as he writes this. Number one, a plurality of spheres, of being strictly subordinated to one another so that we have a series of single terms which represent higher and lower degrees of being. With the last, most unreal sphere of being being comprised of what is usually called perceptible being, being in time and space. So this is the different levels, the one at the top, intellectual principle in the middle, and then the soulish world at the bottom. Two, the derivation of each inferior sphere of being from its superior. This derivation is not being a process in time or space and therefore comparable to mental logical implication rather than to a casual spatial temporal relationship. Thus, the causality of all spheres with regard to each other not being of the type of efficient causality. Three, the derivation of the supreme sphere of being from a principle which, as the source of all being, cannot be described as being. This is the one, as he points out in point four. It is above being and therefore fully indeterminate. This indeterminateness being not the indeterminateness of the most universal concept, but an ontonic indeterminateness, i.e. the fullest being precisely because it is not limited to being this or that. Four, the description of this ontic indeterminateness also by saying that it is the supreme principle is one. This oneness expressing not only its uniqueness but also its complete simplicity, i.e. the lack of any determination. One, designating not the same kind as an adjectival description but being rather the comparatively positive expression of the supreme principle, neither being this or that. That sounds very, fairly close to Plato and Paramendes. Five, the increasing multiplicity in each subsequent sphere of being greater multiplicity designating not only the greater number of entities in each subsequent sphere, but also increasing determination, limitation of each entity until we arrive at the spatial temporal determination and therefore at the minimum of oneness. Six, the knowledge appropriate to the supreme principle as being radically different from the knowledge of any other object in that the former in view of the strictly indeterminate character of the supreme principle cannot be predictive knowledge which knowledge is appropriate only to beings exhibiting some determination. And the most fundamentally difficulty characteristic of what is called Neoplatonism is the explanation and justification of why and how of the passage from the one to the multitude with the principle of matter playing an important role in this process. So that's Neoplatonism. You got these different spheres of reality that descend one from another. And of course, the Neoplatonist goal is to ascend the ones. Now, did Plato teach this ascension, this ascension theology? We can turn and see what he writes in some of his various works. Phaedrus, I will endeavor, this is Plato, to explain to you in what way mortal differs from immortal creatures. The soul in her totality has the care of inanimate being everywhere which transverses the whole heaven in differ forms appearing. When perfect and fully winged, she soars upward. This is an upward ascension. And orders the whole world, whereas the imperfect soul, losing her wings and dropping her flight, at last settles on the solid ground here. So those things which change, they are pulled downwards to down, downward spheres. 
Finding a home, she receives an earthly frame which appears to be self-moved, but is really moved by her power, and this composition of soul and body is called the living and mortal creature. Things came to the mortal world, the changing world, because there's change in it. It's imperfect. It's not going upward. There's there's more movement. The more movement draws things down or down to the lower realms. For immortal, no such union can be reasonably believed to be, although fancy, not having seen or surely known the nature of God, may imagine a mortal creature having both a body and a soul which are united throughout time. He's saying this is not the case, that anything that's immortal does not have a united body and soul. Moving on, such is the life of the gods, but of other souls, that which follows God best and is likest to him lifts the head of the charioteer into the outer world. So the more you become like these deities, like this unchanging realm, the more you're pulled upwards. And is carried around in the revolution, troubled indeed by steeds, and with difficulty beholding its true being, while another only arises and falls and sees, and again fails to see by the reason of the unreliness of the steeds. And so he's talking about the spiritual scent, that you could try to look up above yourself, but some people fail at it. They can only get glimpses and they fall back down. This sounds a lot of like uh, Plotinus. This sounds a lot like Augustine. Augustine trying to peer into this divine world. You have the same ascension language in Plato. The rest of the souls are also longing after the upper world, and they all follow, not being strong enough that they're carried around below the surface, plunging, treading one on another, each striving to be first, and there is confusion and perspiration and extremity of effort. And many of them are lamed or have their wings broken through the ill driving of the charioteers. All of them, after a fruitless toil, not having attained to the mysteries of true being, go away and feed upon opinion. Now we're going to turn to Phaedo, where we get some more of these concepts. He talks about the mystery cults. Now the mystery cults we have talked about before, which were secret initiations into uh, rites, um, processes, philosophy that was not available to the public. And Plato here gives us some some knowledge into the goal of these cults and it's the purification to dwell with the god and i conceive that the founders of the mysteries had a real meaning and were not mere triflers when they imitated a fig in figure long ago that he who passes unsanctified and uninitiated into the world below will live in a slough but he who arrives there after initiation and purification will dwell with the gods there's part of a purification ritual for this uh, platonic ascent that you need to purify your life, get rid of uh, all your physical, the, the changing things, the changing things, your, your material desires need to go if you want to reascend. That's what he's talking about here. For many, as they say in the mysteries, are the thesis bearers, but few are the mystics, meaning as I interpret the words, true philosophers. But he who is a philosopher or lover of learning and is entirely pure at departing is alone permitted to reach the gods. And this is the reason while the true volunteers of philosophy abstain from all fleshly lusts and endear and refuse to give themselves up to them, not because they fear poverty or the ruins of their family, like lovers of money and the world in general, nor like the lovers of power and honor, because they dread the dishonor or disgrace of evil deeds. So he's saying you can't be a Puritan for Puritan's sake. You're a Puritan because you're trying to purify your soul. And in that way, you can reach the upper levels. You could ascend to the gods. This unchanging realm, as he writes elsewhere, this is Platonic philosophy. You have a Platonic ascent. So you have Plato teaching different levels of reality. You have him teaching the one, the one that's pure simplicity, pure uh, immutability outside of time, space, uh, even with uh, pure, pure conceptions. It doesn't have the same type of uh, 
ideas that uh, anything else has. It's, it's, it's beyond description. It's ineffable, basically. This is Plato's theology, and this is what the Neoplatonists, they talk about. So this should give us pause to rethink the, the cave analogy that Plato gives, in which there's people who are, they're chained and they're bound to look at this uh, realm of the shadows, a realm of things not real. And one of the people escapes and he comes to the upper world and he sees these fantastic things and then he brings it back down and he tries to convert those people who are chained up. What Plato is describing here is a Platonic ascent, an ascent into the realm of the true realm, and then being pulled back down into reality. People are going to reject it because they themselves are contemplative on earthly things, earthly pleasures. They are bound by this world, and they hate those people who, who ascend to the higher realms, who get glimpses of the truth. This is Platonic philosophy. This is what the Neoplatonists taught. Of course, the Neoplatonists uh, were more developed in their theology, but they considered themselves pure Platonists. They looked at what Plato taught. They looked at his dialogues. They read between the lines because, again, we have no, we have no words directly from Plato in Plato's works. I, I'm going to stress that again. We have no words from Plato in Plato's works. His dialogues are always between two characters. Sometimes Socrates is the good guy. Sometimes he's he's a learning person like in Paramendes. That, that's, that's, that's how he writes. And so you really got to do some due diligence to see what he's actually teaching. If he's talking about Zeus or anything like that, does he actually believe in these things or does he believe in something else? Well, according to his pupils, he did not he did not believe those things. Those are characters in his story that believe those things. Those characters give us glimpses into his philosophy, and we need to piece together his philosophy. His students tell us that he taught the one. He taught this many forms of existence, one which descends from the other, and we read in his writings that the goal of the philosophers is to reascend. This is Neoplatonism. This is Neoplatonism. Of course, Neoplatonism is more detailed, but Plato taught the key elements taught by Neoplatonists. There's a real connection. And our friend here that uh, I was quoting, he points out that this book, Paramendes, has been the biggest obstacle in trying to draw, draw distinctions between Neoplatonism and Platonism. Let's go read them real quick. To these four factors, characteristic mainly of modern scholarship, we should add another. Of all the dialogues by Plato, none provide a more obstinate obstacle to all the denials of essential similarity between Platonism and Neoplatonism than did Paramendes. Time and time again, the Neoplatonic interpretation of that dialogue is found its champions, regardless of the general trend of viewing all such attempts with suspicion. In short, the present tendency is towards bridging rather than widening the gap between Platonism and Neoplatonism. We'll leave you there. That's the, the theology of Plato. He taught the one. He taught ascension theology to the one. He taught these different spheres. Characteristically, that's what the Neoplatonists taught as well. A Plato, the Neoplatonists, believe it or not, were in fact uh, scholars, interpreters of Plato. It's it's a crazy notion, I know. Anyways, comments or questions, put that down below. Thank you for listening.